The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell and I am honored to be joined by the 82nd Attorney General under President Obama, also the chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Eric Holder is here today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Zerlina. Always a pleasure to talk to you. How are you doing? I am well. And any day that I am alive uh, in the pandemic years, I feel blessed. That's how I feel today. (laughs) It is a little gloomy here in Washington, D.C. It's raining. But um, other than that, I am great. (laughs) How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. You know, it's uh, obviously concerned about the midterm elections, concerned about the attacks on our electoral system, uh, concerned about the state of our democracy. Aside from that, um, I'm doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel very similarly. Sometimes when I think about it for too long, I get a little bit overwhelmed. And I want to mm-hmm. start our conversation by asking you about the normalization of political violence. Obviously, we are all processing the news of the horrific attack and burglary of uh, the Speaker of the House's home in California and the attack on her husband, Paul Pelosi. He's still recovering in the hospital. Um, but in terms of the law enforcement warnings about the threats of political violence and the threats against our democracy post-insurrection. How worried are and concerned are you about that part of this midterm election story? Well, actually, I'm very worried about it. I mean, I think the directives coming, uh, I've seen latest ones, I've seen, you know, things from DHS over the course of the last, you know, day or so that I think are, uh, are, are very accurate, spot on, you know, identifying concerns about election workers in addition to um, you know public officials and things that we have seen coming from the federal government um, you know since January the 6th back in um, you know in 2021 uh, I'm real concerned about this and I think that our nation ought to be concerned about this you know the, the one thing that kind of distinguished the United States from other places was the fact that although we're a loud, noisy country and we yell at each other, um, we respect the, we have respected uh, the results of elections. And, you know, both sides have basically until now said, you know, if you lose, you figure out how you can do it better the next time. But now we question, or, you know, at least one side is questioning um, the legitimacy of the elections. And that breeds a whole bunch of you know cynicism, distrust, mm-hmm. um, and then when you have these these tropes that are that are used, you've got people on the fringes. I mean, the real fringes who are, you know, a little disturbed, a little off, and um, they will act upon these things. Um, you know, you see what happened with Speaker Pelosi's house, uh, Comet Pizza here, you know, in, in right. Washington D.C. So these things are of um, these are not theoretical concerns. These things are. Um, very real, unfortunately. Yeah. And I feel like particularly after the insurrection, I mean, before the insurrection, 
there had been some instances of political violence, um, bombs mailed to the media and members, uh, you know, folks in the political sphere. Um, that person was prosecuted. And so there there already had been, you know, extremists involved in threats and in violence. And Congress folks had been saying, you know, we're getting more threats than ever before. We're concerned for our, the safety of our family members. How much of it do you think is a responsibility of the Republicans, which all of the violent rhetoric right now in this current moment is coming from the right? How much of responsibility do you feel it is incumbent upon Republican leadership to condemn specifically the conspiracy theories that contribute to the violence? Because I think even in the last couple of days, I've listened to even uh, Leader McCarthy respond, and I feel like they're they're hedging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 and there can't be any hedging. I mean, there have to be full-throated denunciations of the conduct that we saw um, at Speaker Pelosi's house, um, full-throated denunciations of, uh, you know, these threats that are kind of, we see on, on social media. And also, you know, the Republicans have got to find, Republican leadership's got to find its backbone and um, take on these these conspiracy theories that are out there and that might seem, you know, to give them some short-term political benefit, but have the long-term negative have a long-term negative impact mm-hmm. on our democracy. And um, I, I would hope that in some way and in some fashion, they'll find the um, you know the ability to be more forthright, um, to be more I don't know more intense in their uh, their denunciations of. Uh, of this inappropriate conduct. In your book, Our Finished March, you um, unpack, you know, the three branches of government. I love books where you kind of go through each branch and you're like, these are all the issues we can work on Mm -hmm. uh, to make this thing work a little bit better. And one of the things um, I wrote about in my book, The End of White Politics, is this, I well, the phenomenon that we're living through, which is the demographic shift, which are creating an America we've never really had before, where the electorate is uh, minority white, majority Mm -hmm. non-white voters. There has been a response to that demographic shift, um, especially since 2020 uh, in, you know, variety of states, Georgia, Texas, with new voting regulations. Can you just talk a bit about how those voting laws are going to impact the upcoming midterms? And well, the midterms were already in, in early voting. Um, and how you assess the threats to democracy in the elections space. Yeah, I mean, you know, these new laws that we have seen in place, and I say new laws, but I mean, just actually, these are new laws placed on top of laws that were passed over the course of the last couple of decades that have made it more difficult for certain people um, to vote. I mean, among other things, um, you know, these unnecessary photo ID laws, Mm -hmm. uh, the closure of polling places, after the, the Shelby County decision in 2013, 1,700 polling places closed around the country at, at last count, disproportionately in communities of color, um, purging uh, voter rolls, again, disproportionately in communities of color. Um, so you've got that component. You've got a tax on our electoral system um, where you have you know, Republicans, well, at least parts of the Republican Party, openly saying that they want to put people um, in place to, to, to monitor um, elections. And we saw what monitoring looks like in Arizona, where you have mm-hmm. people with uh, you know, long guns and, and face masks and camouflage on as people trying to put ballots in, in drop boxes. Um, so, and then, you know, 
partisan and, and racial gerrymandering, um, where uh, you know they create these systems. You look at Wisconsin, you know, um, mm-hmm. for, for Democrats to get the majority of the seats in the uh, Wisconsin Assembly, you got to win fifty six percent of the votes. For Republicans to take the majority, they only have to win forty four percent of the votes, and that's a function of partisan um, gerrymandering. So all of these things, it, it, it puts a real brew together um, to make it difficult for people to vote and then to have your vote really valued. Um, you know, gerrymandering really kind of um, devalues your, your your vote. And we've right. seen in problem, problematic places like Wisconsin, Texas, Georgia, Florida. Um, and so that's why we have been uh, as active as we've been filing lawsuits, supporting democracy defenders and trying to do as much as we can to you know, make our, our system um, more fair. There's been a lot of talk. I mean, going back to 2012, when a lot of this gerrymandering got underway in sort of the more explicit racist form. And there's been a lot of conversation around partisan gerrymandering and a response like both sides do it. Democrats, they gerrymander their maps to benefit um, them when they have the majorities. Republicans do the same thing. Can you talk a bit about why the gerrymandered maps by Republicans are different um, in your view, if you see them as different than some of the Republican maps that we're seeing, including the one you just talked about in Wisconsin? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no question that throughout our history, both parties have, in fact, gerrymandered. Um, Princeton University did a study looking at the last time we went through the redistricting process in, in 2011, 2012, and said that what Republicans did there through this thing called Project Red Map was the worst gerrymandering of the last 50 years. And we had to deal with the results of that really bad gerrymandering over the course of the last um, decade. Um, Republicans, I think, have made peace with the notion that they're going to be a minority party in terms of popular support, but they want to have majority power um, even though they might not have, you know, uh, majority support from the, the electorate. And so they have gerrymandered themselves. Um, th- th- this is all about the acquisition and the maintenance of power. Mm-hmm. And they have done things through gerrymandering uh, to acquire power to which they're not entitled. And then that allows them to keep power. Um, you know, and, and we've seen it. Not, you know, people tend to think of this, oh, this only happens in the South. Well, this is happening, you know, it happened in Michigan, it happened in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, it, it, it happened in, you know, Wisconsin, Ohio. And we've brought lawsuits and done a variety of things to reduce um, the impact uh, of that gerrymandering. But it is um, something that the Republican Party, I, seen, I think, has seen as an effective tool, especially in light of these demographic changes that they fear. Uh, and I think also it's a, it's a function of something else they fear, which is the ideological shift in mm-hmm. the um, with this increased um, diversity that we see. In the largest voting block that we see in the country now is is young people, although they don't use the power that they have to the extent that they should. And Republicans don't see themselves as um, as winning with regard with with regard to those those cohorts. So they, as a result, employ these. Um, I think, inappropriate, um, unfair, un-American um, tactics. It feels a lot like, you know, there's a moment here where we can push, you know, for a fairer system, um, because I think that's if you would believe in democracy, that's what you want. What are some of the systemic changes you think about a lot in terms of, OK, if we did this, that would fix a whole lot in terms of shifting our democracy and our elections process in the hands yeah. of the will of the people, the majority, like it's supposed to be. 
Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, you know, ending gerrymandering, as was a part of the bill that was considered not passed by the mm-hmm. By, by Congress this year. Um, you know, if you end the filibuster in the mm-hmm. Senate, that does a whole bunch to open up, you know, uh, great, great possibilities. Um, you know, automatic voter registration, same day registration, make election day a national holiday, um, okay. ensure that every state has 14 days of early voting guarantee, um, have more polling places. Um, you know, increase the ability of people to vote um, from home, you know, voting through the mail, um, you know, and unnecessary um, purging of, of, of voters. Um, you know, Congress, I think, needs to do some things. We need to, given the, the Shelby County case, and I think what unfortunately what is likely to happen with regard to Section 2 by the Supreme Court in this term, um, we need a new Voting Rights Act, you know, right. updated 19, we had one in 1965, the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. We need an updated um, Voting Rights Act. And so those are the kinds of things that I think if we put in place, we could deal with a lot of the negative things that I've previously um, mentioned and get us to um, a better place. But I think at the end of the day also, there has to be a political um, solution to this. And Republicans have to suffer a series of shattering electoral defeats, or maybe shattering, but a series of electoral defeats um, if they're going to get if they're going to get weaned in order to wean them from the path that um, you know that 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 they're that they're on. Um, they have to see that the tactics that they use um, mm-hmm. don't win. And so we've got to win elections in addition to coming up with the structural changes. Do you think that's possible in this election cycle? I mean, it's we've talked about the new voting changes since 2020, but early voting does appear to show increased enthusiasm. There's, you know, historic turnout, even among young people in some places so far. Is it possible in one cycle to do what you're talking about? I'm not sure one cycle, um, but this would certainly be a good place to start. Um, (laughs) But, you know, if you had, you know, progressive democratic success in 2022, um, again, in 2024, I I think if you did that over those two cycles, you know, in a presidential cycle and this cycle, um, that would go a long way to curing, you know, the, the fever that I think has to be broken in mm-hmm. the Republican Party. Donald Trump will ultimately, you know, leave the scene, but there's no question that Trumpism is something that will remain in the party, I think, for for some time. And so those for those Republicans, and they do exist, you know, for those Republicans who are who are not Trump acolytes, um, they need to have, you know, data, they need to be able to point to these electoral defeats to say that, you know, the Trump way, the Trumpism is is, is the wrong way to go. And we need to return to, uh, you know, being a more traditionally normal party. I miss normal. I miss regular <laughs> debates where you just talked about policy like nerds. Like what happened to that? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's okay for people, as I said, we're a noisy country and, you know, and to, you know, let's disagree about policies. But at the end of the day, let's also have some degree of respect for one another. It doesn't mean we're not going to, it's not going to be a kumbaya moment. We're going to just love each other, but we can have some basic respect. And certainly we don't need to engage in um, or have threats made uh, to people who are in public life or, or even, you know, most, I think, appallingly, just regular citizens, you know, mm-hmm. volunteering their time to work the polls. I mean, you know, these are right. Republicans, Democrats, independents. These just people who just want to do, be involved in the civic life of this nation. And they are, uh, um, of all people, you know, getting threatened. 
It's so horrifying to see the threats on election workers and poll workers who, as you said, are volunteering um, just to be a part of democracy. I mean, you were the attorney general for a president that was the first black president. And Mm -hmm. in so many ways, I feel like we're living through a little bit of a reaction um, to America having a black president for two terms. Do you see this moment as a backlash to the racial reckoning? Do you see the racial reckoning and all that's happened throughout the course of the pandemic and post Obama going into the Trump era as a response to really this idea that if you have a president of the United States, that is a black man, Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of folks who they don't want to see that. That's not the America that they believe they are a citizen of. And I feel like the, the conversation about race, we, we we never really have it. We just sort of dance around it. Mm-hmm. We, we yeah. said we reckoned with it in the summer of 2020, but I don't think so. They said we were post-racial. We were not. I mean, how do you assess the race conversation and what do we need to be talking about when we're having it in this moment to actually move past? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's not necessarily a, a reaction to Barack, to President Obama, um, certainly that's a component of it, but I think it more is a reaction to what he represented. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the fact that there was this multi, I mean, people can't be, got to remember what it was like in 2008. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a multiracial effort that put him in office. Um, and I think the status quo was threatened by that, continues to be threatened by that possibility. And, um, you know, we are experts in this country at avoiding tough conversations about race. Um, we always want to say, well, it's not race, it's class. It's, you know, we always come up with all kinds of different ways in which we um, ignore uh, something that we have to grapple with if we ultimately want to make the progress um, that, 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 we, that we need. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a racial interaction, a racial conversation that, um, that needs, to, needs to be had. Um, and it, it, I think, you know, that is a thing that, that animates a lot of what's going on now. People mm-hmm. see this nation changing. I mean, we see that, you know, now I guess they say it's 2043, where this country will have um, a greater number of people of color than it will um, white folks. And that, for some people, is a, is a threatening thing, a worrisome thing. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, let's let's have conversations about, you know, what the future is going to look like. But also, let's have a conversation and understand what our racial past, um, mm-hmm. you know, has been. You can't understand the future if you don't have knowledge of of, of the past. And so, the conversation's got to be um, all encompassing. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. Um, but we've got to we've got to finally, finally, somehow find the way to engage, um, engage with one another in, uh, in that way. It's so important. I mean, that's what we try to do on the morning show every day. I'm having, you know, hard conversations, but I feel like might as well, <laughs> I'm not afraid of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things I also want to talk about, we have about five more minutes left, uh-huh. um, is Trump. You, you you name checked him, um, but he hasn't come up a lot in this conversation because, as you mentioned, he's in the past in a lot of ways, um, even though he wants to run in 2024. Do you mm-hmm. think that he should be barred from running for office? I don't know what's going to happen with the charges. There are so many different cases. There's a documents case, the Georgia case, and obviously a larger case related to the insurrection that's possible. Mm-hmm maybe not likely we don't know we'll see what happens but in in the end 
should he be barred from running for office? Do you think his conduct has warranted that outcome? You know, I would hope that um, people in the Republican Party would make the determination that they don't want him to be um, their representative in terms of, you know, the next presidential election. And I think that as they make that judgment, they're going to have to take into consideration what I think are likely indictments in Atlanta, um, the, a good possibility of an indictment with regard to these uh, these documents that he has down there or had down there in Mar-a-Lago. And I think also with regard to, um, you know, the January 6th um, coup attempt, you know, his uh, admonition to the Justice Department officials, well, you know, you just say it's fraud and I'll, I'll take care of mm-hmm. the rest. That call to, um, you know, the folks in Georgia, find me 11,780 votes. I mean, I think those are at least just two, just two of the things that the January 6th mm-hmm. uh, has uncovered. And, you know, in, in terms of an indictment for conspiracy to defraud, uh, conspiracy to obstruct, those are, I think, you know, real serious, you know, I, I think likely to be brought charges in connection with the January 6th um, coup attempt. And so in those three areas, um, I think he's going to, he's likely to have, um, he's likely to have legal issues. And that being the case, my hope would be that the Republican Party would decide that um, even if they're going to be Trumpist, that maybe Trump himself would not be, um, you know, would not be the nominee. Is there a scenario you think that there could be multiple indictments? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I've not had a chance to look at the evidence, but I, I certainly, you know, read all the things that are reported from mm-hmm. reliable sources. And I think that uh, the possibility of indictments in Atlanta um, for the documents and for the January 6th um, conduct, those three indictments, I think, are, um, are definitely possible. That's not like a small thing, right? We're, no, we're talking no, about no. a former president. Right. When, when, when you were the attorney general, Merrick Garland's the attorney general, yeah. um, when, when you're considering bringing charges against a high profile political person, there's been so much conversation about, you know, you have to make sure that you have all the evidence to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, considering there's going to be a backlash to the charges being brought in the first place. Is that overstated? Do you think is that I mean, is Merrick Garland really hand wringing at this point? Or is he just looking at the evidence and saying, we have a case here? I mean, how does an attorney general look at a a case like this? We are talking about a former president, though. Yeah, I mean, I think you're trying to build the best case that you can. But I think what he said uh, maybe six weeks or so ago, I think, is reflective of, uh, I think, his state of mind. I've known Merrick, you know, 20, 25 years Mm -hmm. or so. And Mm -hmm. that is that you bring charges without fear or favor. And that means, you know, you look at the case as you would try to look at any other case. Um, and then bring, you know, something that's based on the facts, based on the law, but understanding also that bringing a case against a former president is something we've never done before. Um, it's going to definitely have an impact on the nation, um, you know, potentially splitting the nation. You know, people think he shouldn't have indicted. People say he, sh- he should have been indicted. But I think that we also also need to understand that not bringing charges uh, would also um, likely split the nation. And so, the best thing to do is simply, uh, as I said, apply the, the law to the facts and um, you know do the appropriate thing. When I did an interview with David Axelrod, probably mm-hmm. about two and a half years ago now, um, and he asked me that, would you bring charges against the former president? And I said, you know, there's something I would be really reluctant to do, um, given the impact it would have on the nation. But I got to tell you, um, what I've seen as adduced by the January 6th committee, uh, what, you, what we see about the documents now, what happened mm-hmm. in Georgia, the, the Fulton County case, 
um, I'm in a different place. Um, I, I really am. Um, I, I'm in a, now I think that if you can find the cases, if you can find find the evidence that you can you should bring you should bring the charges. Um, that is that's not the position I would have taken. Um, you know, just a couple of years or so. I, I really really reluctant, but I think um, I'm in a different place now. I am. I'm just processing everything you're saying. It's a it's a really important decision that the attorney general is going to have to make. Obviously, with the team that is investigating and prosecuting all of these cases, but. It's it's also important, as you said, to hold folks accountable, particularly when there's this much evidence in the public domain. My last question and the very last one minute. thing, you know, oh, yeah, one, thing, one thing, you know, here's the deal. If let's just if the evidence is as the January 6th committee um, has adduced, if charges were not to be brought against, you know, high level officials in the, the administration, people who were involved, potentially Trump himself, if charges were not brought there is no there is no deterrent impact. And what is what stops somebody 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 50 years from now from trying to do the same thing, which is to stop the transfer of power, um, which is at the heart of American democracy. You know, there has to be a deterrent impact. People need to be held um, accountable. And that is the thing that has really kind of um, switched things in my mind. Mm. My very, very last question is, how do you stay optimistic, um, given all that we've talked about today? You know, it's interesting. I mean, in, in my book, when you talk about our unfinished, unfinished march, I, I look at in the first part of the book, um, you know, how Americans reacted to challenges in our democracy uh, in the past. And every generation um, has risen to um, the challenge. Um, you know, I look at it through people acquiring the right to vote. You know, uh, white men without property did not have the right to vote. They launched a movement to get the right to vote. Women didn't have the right to vote. Uh, African-Americans got the vote, then lost the vote, got it back. And they, all of these folks, all these generations um, facing physical danger, um, facing, you know, state-inspired terror, uh, nevertheless overcame those obstacles and, and saved democracy in their time. I think we have the capacity to do it in our time. And I'm actually optimistic. It's not going to be easy. There are going to be setbacks along the way, um, but over time, I think that we'll get to uh, get to a better better place. The 82nd Attorney General of the United States and Chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, Eric Holder, thank you so much for chatting with me today and for discussing all of these important things as we are in the middle of election season, as we head into election day, the midterm election on November the 8th. <sighs> It's an important moment for American democracy. No, it certainly is. And, uh, you know, uh, the base obligation that we all have as citizens is what I ask everybody who's listening to do. Make sure that you vote. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. And please stay safe. Okay, thanks for having me. You take care. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlinette. Check in for new episodes every weekday.